It's the spring of 1931, and Hazel has come to New York City to look for a job. She's been divorced for a year and a half, trying to make ends meet at a time when the United States is diving deep into the Great Depression. She has twelve dollars in her pocket and five children back in Middleborough to feed. She needs work, and she needs to break into the world of writing. Back in Finland, I return to my corporate communications job and daily commutes. I say goodbye to the days, weeks, and months I've spent full time with Hazel's story. As I sit in the train to go to work day after day, I make a decision. I will, one way or another, travel to the U.S. to follow Hazel's story. Whether it's only for a few weeks or a longer period of time, I will go out and find the leads that are still hiding in library shelves and archived in cardboard boxes somewhere. I want to meet people who knew Hazel, even if I don't know who they are or how to find them. By the time Hazel moves to New York City, she has encountered three major setbacks. One. She applies for the Guggenheim Fellowship with very supportive recommendation letters by editors such as Edmund Wilson and Robert Linscott. You have already heard a bit about Edmund Wilson, but Robert Linscott might sound less familiar. But you most likely know writers such as Carson McCullers and Truman Capote. Well, Robert Linscott worked with both of them later on and did a long career as editor in major publishing houses like Houghton Mifflin and Random House. So my point with setback number one is, in the early stages of her career, Hazel has the support of these editors, but her writing plans and the recommendation letters are not enough to win the Guggenheim Fellowship. Setback number two. Hazel sends a short story called Chastening of the Lord to a writing contest by Scribner's magazine, where the main prize is $5,000 US dollars, which Hazel really could have used at the time. But in the end, someone else takes home the main prize. Setback number three. The old life-saving station at Peacott Hill in the dunes of Provincetown The one place Hazel loves very, very much falls into the sea from the edge of the dune. It is as if the world devours her ambition and dreams one by one, and the Atlantic Ocean literally takes its own. But believe it or not, the universe interferes. Two events take place, and the timing could not be better. One evening in March, Hazel goes out to dinner to a German restaurant on Third Avenue with Edmund Wilson and his then-wife, Margaret Canby. A writer called Maurice Werner happens to walk into the same restaurant to have dinner on his own. He has recently returned from Paris, where he had been working as a foreign correspondent to the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune and the Yorkshire Post of England. He knows the Wilsons, but has never met the young woman in their company. So he joins the small dinner party instead of having dinner on his own. 
The evening when Hazel and Morris meet each other is cold. Sharp winds are blowing in the streets of New York and people try to find shelter from the cold in any which way they can. The serendipitous dinner continues to a ramshackle moving picture house not too far from the restaurant. They're playing an old Charlie Chaplin film and the admission fee is only 10 cents. The Wilsons soon leave to go home, but Hazel and Morris stay to see the rest of the film. The two end up stopping for a drink at Morris's place. As the evening progresses, Morris is more and more attracted to Hazel. To him, she looks maybe about 23, but he has to swallow a few times when he realizes that Hazel is 30, divorced, and a mother of five. Morris has grown up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, studied at the Columbia School of Journalism and published several books already. Hazel is different. Around the same time, Hazel's short story Camera Angles on Three Lives comes out in The Fourth American Caravan. It's a yearbook of American literature and receives very good reviews, even praise. Our heroine does not know it yet, but she has just met her future husband and is about to enter the most successful decade of her writing career. Just like Hazel's first novel, Salt House Wood, in a few years' time, the newly published short story Camera Angles on Three Lives features one woman and two men. Reading through the story, one notices the presence of dunes, Germany, and a complicated triangle of emotions. The book reviewer of the New York Herald Tribune, Florence Haxton Britton, nominated Hazel as the finest new talent in the entire publication. She writes, Out of the 37 contributors, 23 are newcomers to the caravan's pages, and several of the best of these have not hitherto appeared in print anywhere else. And in my opinion, the finest new talent exposed to view in all the 580 closed-text pages appears in Hazel Hawthorne's short story, Camera Angles on Three Lives. Now, let's take a moment to digest what we're hearing. Editors, who are well-known at the time and will later grow into outright superheroes of the editing world, recognize Hazel's potential as a writer when she has published next to nothing. A book reviewer of a well-known newspaper nominates her the finest new talent based on the first short story she publishes in the US. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds pretty remarkable. Phenomenal. Unusual. I mean, who gets that kind of support from the get-go? An interesting detail catches my eye in this yearbook of American literature, The American Caravan. In the brief introductions at the end of the book, we learn that many of the writers had published in magazines. Someone had completed a course in aviation. Some had extensive studies to their name. Some had neither a remarkable education nor a notable publishing career, and their introductions remained brief. So was Hazel's. It merely reads, Hazel Louise Hawthorne was born in Limerick, Maine in 1901. She is married and has six children. She has contributed to the Bermondsey Book and Voices, 
At present, she's working on a novel. Now, out of all the 37 introductions, Hazel is the only writer whose family relations are mentioned at all. And even the facts are wrong. At the time of publication, Hazel is not married. She does not have six children. Here's the question. If family relations are mentioned for one writer, and you can't even get the facts straight on that one, why bother doing it at all? I decide to write a new introduction for Hazel as she now enters the literary circles of New York City. Here's how it goes. Hazel Louise Hawthorne was born in Limerick, Maine in 1901. She has published poetry in The Liberator and Voices and a short story in the UK-based Bermondsey book. She travelled across the Atlantic to pursue her literary career in 1928 and is currently working on her first novel and more short fiction. She may not have the formal education, but she has talent that is recognised by some of the leading editors of our time. Her work is strongly inspired by the complexity of human relations, the dunes of Provincetown in Cape Cod, and the time she spent in Europe. Sounds much better, doesn't it? While Hazel makes her great entrance into the world of writing, I step into a local train in Helsinki. I'm more frustrated than ever. I sit in the train every weekday, run for the bus, walk home, cook dinner, walk the dog, and repeat. It's dark, it's cold, and I'm once again questioning why I choose to live in this northern country. It happens every winter, if I'm honest, sometimes even in the fall. I've sent out funding applications in hope for a chance to work on the project full-time, but all the applications come back negative, again and again. My full-time job takes up most of the day, and I struggle to find time and energy for Hazel. I really need something to help me stay focused. I think it's time to start making concrete plans to travel to the US. Hmm... Where should I fly to? How long should I stay? I'm thinking two weeks is definitely not enough. Maybe three is more realistic. I have a few leads I want to follow, and I definitely want to visit Provincetown and the Dunes, visit some libraries and archives both in Boston and New York City. Will I feel terribly lonely if I travel for three weeks? Will I start talking to myself? I wonder what Provincetown is like. And how on earth will I ever find people who knew Hazel? I don't know. Hmm. Should I place an ad in the local newspaper or what? I don't even know who I'm looking for. In a few months' time, I've created an itinerary for three weeks. I'll start from Boston, visit Middleborough while I'm there, hop on the ferry for a week-long visit to Provincetown, and then head towards New York by bus. I'll make a few pit stops up Cape on the way. I'll travel alone, use almost all of my summer vacation for this, and pay all of it by myself. I got this. As I book the flights and hotels, I feel an unhealthy amount of excitement. 
I'm going to travel to the US to follow Hazel's story. I'm thinking, I'm either a total badass for doing this, or completely crazy. I don't know which one. The 1930s was Hazel's decade. We could spend the rest of the podcast talking about the 30s and everything that happened to Hazel over the next 10 years. But let me fast forward the decade for you. Hold on to your hats. Hazel moves to New York City and gets her literary career going in 1931. She works for the National Board of Review to publish critiques of the finest films writes synopses of novels to the film production company MGM, marries writer and biographer Maurice Werner in 1932, is photographed by Walker Evans in 1933, enjoys so many drinks and dinners in the literary circles of New York, spends an entire summer in the dunes in Provincetown in 1933, writes several book reviews to the New Republic, publishes her first novel, Salt House, in 1934, publishes more short stories in magazines like The New Yorker and Pagany, moves to Washington, D.C. for a while, purchases her first dune shack in the dunes of Provincetown in 1936, publishes her second novel, Three Women, in 1938, and travels up to Maine to research a third book she wants to write, this is not even all of it. Are you out of breath yet? However, life is not all success and glory. Money is scarce, Hazel has to go through an abortion, most likely not the first one, and two of the children, John and Margaret, move to live in California with their father Celian, while Jane, Nancy and Sally stay on the East Coast with Hazel. It must have been a difficult time for the family. But now, Hazel finally has a dune shack in the dunes of Provincetown. A room of her own, if you like. The 30s have truly been a roller coaster ride for our heroine. So much professional success, entering the literary circles with a bang, and then heavy personal losses. I can't help but think of this one letter she wrote to Edmund Wilson back in 1929, when she was in the dunes. Here's what Hazel writes. Dear Edmund, as I ride my pony into town, I'm all a shiver at the colors in the woods. It's been cold enough to make the leaves fry up early, and I've never seen more brilliant colors in delicate markings, paradoxical as that seems. It makes me feel near to old Thoreau, when I look at small hill, all velvety red and green like a deep wool pile, and remember how he walked out here and saw the woods as a rich Turkish rug. The days are graying and the surf is running high. We're trying to make some wine out of the cranberries and our beer is very successful. The kids are so hardy that they're still bare-legged. I gallop down the long hill under a misty full moon. In some ways, 
It's the most perfect living I've ever known. I feel about to break out into sonnets again. In the next episode, I will hike to the dunes of Provincetown and, to my surprise, get to visit one of Hazel's old dune shacks. I'm hoping to find answers to some of the questions that haunt me now maybe more than ever. If the 30s were this successful for Hazel, what happened afterwards? Did she disappear from the face of the earth? Why have we never heard of Hazel Hawthorne? This podcast is produced by Inka Leisma and S.C. Somaki, hosted by Inka Leisma. Quoting the New York Herald Tribune from March 29, 1931, Hazel Hawthorne's letter to Edmund Wilson quoted with permission of the Hazel Hawthorne estate. Available at Edmund Wilson Papers, Yale Collection of American Literature, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, Yale University. Maurice Werner's unpublished memoir, cited with permission of the Hazel Hawthorne estate. Available at Maurice Werner Papers, Manuscripts and Archives Division, New York Public Library. Hazel Hawthorne's application cited courtesy of John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Background music and audio clips from Albert Marlowe and Freesound users Prometheus 888 and Chestnut Jam. Theme song by Studio Le Bus.